Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have been the author of our salvation and you've brought it to completion on our behalf, that we have the opportunity to be in relationship with you, that you have given us your spirit, that we may rest in its power, rely on it, that we may have discernment from your scriptures. And I pray that you would just give that to us this morning as we learn from your word together. In your name we pray. Can I have a seat? Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Um, if this is your first time, come introduce yourself to me. Um, I'd love to meet you uh, and share with you a little bit more about the church. Uh, a couple quick announcements for you guys just to let you know what's been going on, where we're going, what we're doing, um, what we're still trying to, obviously, um, we're still even trying to figure out this space because we moved rather quickly. Uh, because our old space was purchased rather quickly. And so uh, we still got a lot of things we're trying to figure out for the remainder of the summer and heading into the fall when we will see a lot more seats <laughs> in this place because of students being back in school in the fall. Uh, so just a, a couple of brief things to let you guys know what's going on. If you are already a covenant member here at Aletheia or you are uh, thinking about becoming a covenant member here at Aletheia, um, our next meeting will be directly after church on July 15th. Uh, I and get, I'm guessing that the meeting will last about probably 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, we have a, a, a potential elder candidate to put before you guys um, and, and get your feedback on before we would officially install him as an elder. Uh, we'll give you guys a financial update on where the church is at and let you guys know a few other things. Um, over the next two Sundays, I'll make sure that I have some... Um, uh, actual uh, membership covenants here available for you guys after church so you guys can take a look at them uh, and, and what it means to, to partner with us here uh, as a church family and, and what we're hoping to do in the city. So, but go ahead and mark that on your calendars for right after uh, morning worship on July 15th. We usually finish up a little bit before noon. We'd probably start the meeting, I would say, by 1215, 1220. Um, if you can go ahead and move to the next slides. Uh, next week, our baptisms. We have three people getting baptized next Sunday. I know it's exciting. Can we give God a hand for that? That's awesome. Exciting. Um, if you haven't been baptized yet and you, you want to get baptized, uh, see me after service, and we'll make it happen. Uh, move to the next slide for me there. Uh, fall, if you are interested, so we're going to do something different. For those of you guys that have been at the church for a while, you kind of know that we've been running community groups and having an elder uh, kind of overseeing each particular uh, community group. Uh, we're going to be switching up that format um, in the fall. And so if you feel like you have a gift to teach or you have a desire to disciple people and you're interested in doing that and you would like to uh, consider uh, leading a community group in the fall here at Aletheia, uh, starting next week we'll have actual sign-ups. Uh, but I, if, you're just, if you want to know more, uh, talk to Derek or myself. 
uh, about what the commitment for that would look like, um, what, what our plans for that are, and how you can uh, choose what curriculum you would want to do for the fall and how, how to get that approved by the elder team here at the church. Uh, but if you're interested in leading a community group in the fall, please see me or Derek, and we'll get some more information to you guys as well, and we'll also have uh, a meeting for future leaders uh, in the beginning of August to be ready for that. Uh, but I'm excited about it. It's going to give you guys some more opportunity to step up and lead and disciple people and uh, help us to relinquish some control that we've had as leaders in the church. Speaking of community groups, uh, ladies' community group is this Tuesday at Lois's house at 6.30, correct? If you need more information, uh, you can get on the website, and there's a link to the Facebook group, and I would encourage you, if you're a lady, to join that and go check that out. They're uh, studying. What are you guys studying this week? Discipleship. So if you guys uh, want to learn a little bit more about discipleship, uh, that'll be this week uh, at 6.30, and there's the address up there on the screen. And then if you can just throw up Kevin's picture up there for me, um, Brent. Uh, sorry for all the announcements today, guys. But as you guys know, last week we were praying for uh, Kevin Valencia. Uh, I shared with you guys that one of our uh, members here at the church, uh, Mario Escobar and his wife and three kids, um, that the officer that was shot in Orlando about two weeks ago was actually Mario's brother. Um, so a couple, couple of things to just praise God for and update you on. He's still alive. Um, the swelling in his brain continues to go down. He's off the ventilator, and he's breathing on his own. And so uh, here's kind of like what our next kind of charge to you guys is in praying for him. Um, pray that the swelling continues to go down first and foremost. That's the most important thing that they need to kind of continue to happen in his recovery and restoration. Number two, uh, continue to pray for the doctoral teams both in Orlando but also for the, the facility that he's probably going to be moved to here soon. Uh, he's going to be moving, getting moved to a facility that actually specializes in dealing with brain trauma and comas. So pray for... Um, not just the medical teams, but also actually moving him from Orlando to this new facility. Um, also pray that um, his insurance company will approve the move. Um, it's a big deal for him to actually be able to go. The, the insurance company has to say, yes, we're, we're going to approve that as well. And then continue to pray for Megan, who is Kevin's wife, and their two little boys. Um, the oldest has started to ask questions of, you know, where's my dad? Is he still alive? And whatever else. So pray for them as well. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, but we're praising God. He continues to kind of be making progress. And we're just praying now that the swelling would go down so that he could come out of the coma and be ready for um, rehab and other things that he's going to have to go through to kind of put his life back together. So if you guys would continue to pray for Kevin, uh, we would really appreciate it. Awesome. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans uh, chapter 16. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're finally finishing the book of Romans today. Um, as I, I sat down earlier this week as I was preparing and we started studying Romans back in August of last year. Uh, and and Besides a short detour during the month of uh, December where we did an Advent series, um, we have been studying Romans every Sunday for about 40 weeks um, over the course of the last year. And so um, just to give you guys a little snapshot for what we'll be doing next, over the next seven weeks we're going to resurrect uh, the series that we did last summer called Forgotten Books. Uh, and, and basically kind of the, our purpose in doing that is to teach through a couple books of the Bible that we don't normally read or study. Uh, we all tend to do this, but we have like on a, kind of our go-to books and things that we want to study. So uh, during the, the month of July, we'll be studying Zephaniah. 
And then moving into August, we'll study Haggai. And then once we do those two books, then we'll move into the book of Ephesians and, and start a new series uh, at the end of August, studying Ephesians throughout the fall and probably a little bit into February. Um, so I'm going to be straight up with you guys. Uh, Romans 16 is going to seem a little all over the place this morning uh, because... <laughs> First of all, that's just kind of the way Paul is in general when he writes, but when he's finishing up a big letter or like on the scale of what he's done in Romans, um, it's going to seem a little bit even more frenetic and crazy than he normally is. And so as we study the letter this morning, it's probably going to be better to see uh, chapter 16 as four separate quick snapshot sections that we're going to study. And we're going to just kind of address each section instead of trying to see it as one big continuous thought because Paul's a little disjointed in the way that he kind of breaks down each particular section. So let me tell you what the sections are going to be. Uh, verses 1 through 16, he's just going to be greeting a bunch of individual people uh, at the church in Rome. And then in verses 17 through 20, he's going to give some final instructions to the church. Then when we get to verses 21 through 23, um, I, I put down here, this was my title for it, but he's going to give some shout outs to some ministry partners. So, I mean, I, I think that's be pretty cool. You know, your name's just forever etched in scripture as a shout out. So, <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty cool. And then... Uh, the, the verses that Sam read for us, the last four verses are actually a, a doxology. And a, and a doxology is just a, a praise to God for what he has done. And so that's, that's how Paul finishes his letter to the church at, at Rome of just shouting praises to God for what he's done. And hopefully after we get through all of that this morning, we'll have some time to reflect much like Paul does at the end on God's faithfulness and what he has done. And, and both what he has done for us in Christ, but also Paul, how, how God has used Paul to reveal the truth of Jesus and what he's done in this letter. So go ahead and turn over to, to verse 1 with me. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read uh, the first couple verses for you, but I'm not going to read all of this because it's pretty long and there's a lot in there. And so I'm just going to give you guys a quick snapshot on a few things. But let me read the first couple verses to you. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church and, and Chintrei, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys for a second. How many of you guys, and, and maybe you guys can be honest with me as well. How many of you guys, whenever you come to a section of scripture that has just lists a bunch of names or lists the, the way something's built or uh, just records something, tend to skip over or glance over sections of scripture like this? Okay, a lot of honesty here this morning. I like it. I appreciate that, right? Um, I remember back when I was a newer believer reading through the book of Exodus. The second half of Exodus is really riveting stuff, guys. I mean... <laughs> Actually, let's just go there real quick. Turn over to Exodus chapter 26 with me real quick. Um, the, the, second, the first half of Exodus is just like this super exciting story. I mean, Disney even made a movie out of it. I don't know why they didn't choose the second half of Exodus, right? But look at Exodus 26 with me, right? I, I just want to look at the first six verses. This is how exciting Exodus is, right? These are specific rules that God gave on the building of the tabernacle, um, so, so let's, let's read this. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them 
make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Anybody really excited yet getting, getting jazzed up for what God's doing? Right, look at this. 50 loops you shall make on, on the one curtain, and 50 loops you shall make on the edge of the other curtain. By the way, all the type A people in the room right now are pumped. <laughs> people like me who aren't type A are like, what is this? But the type A people are like, look how organized this is. This is great. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other and with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Guys, this, the second half of Exodus is pretty much exactly like what I just read right there. There's rules on tabernacle construction. There's rules on what the priests of the temple are supposed to wear. Uh, there's rules on the Holy of Holies and what's supposed to be set up there. There's rules on the consecration of the priests and what they're supposed to wear and what they're supposed to do before they even go into the tabernacle. And I remember thinking to myself when I first read through Exodus, gosh, this, why is this here? Why is this important? Why in the totality of scripture did God in his infinite wisdom decide I needed to know how many loops were going to be in the curtain of the tabernacle? And then, and then by God's grace, he revealed something to me. That information like this, one shows God's incredible attention to detail. And if God shows this level and attention to detail on the building to where he's supposed to be worshipped by the Israelites, how much more so does he show attention and detail to the every minute thing going on in our lives? And that in his sovereignty and in his control of all things, if he will give this much attention and detail to the curtains in the tabernacle, how much more so does he care about the plan he has for your life? How much more so does he care about your salvation how much more so does he care about what's going on in your family? How much more so does he care about what's going on in the lives of your children or your wife or your spouse or the person you're dating or the people that you work with? And God used that to encourage me. And we can also learn so much more so about how much bigger God is than us. How much more in control he is in life and how our obedience to him is paramount because God cares about everything. If God cares about how many holes there are in the curtain to hang, how much more so does he care about my obedience to him as I worship him? And so when you get to Romans 16 in these first 16 verses and you see a list like Paul has, I think there's actually some pretty important stuff to see. Like for example, right, in those first two verses that I read, right, he, sh he shares about this woman named Phoebe. And he says that he commends her to the church at Rome. That word commend in the Greek literally means to introduce with favor or approval. And so here's what Paul's saying. He's like, this, first of all, let me just stop there. That, this is a big deal in first century Rome, by the way. Okay, I don't know if you guys know anything about, but it's, you know, we're only like 100 years into women's suffrage and women's rights here in the West, in the U.S., it was, and we still are fighting for those things probably as a society and as a culture, right? And first, in the, in the ancient world in the first century, there was no such thing as women's rights. 
There was no such thing as caring about women's place in the, both the religious sphere, but even outside the religious sphere and the political sphere. And here you have Paul, right, of Jewish descent, who's also a Roman citizen, writing to the Roman church and saying, hey, be ready for Phoebe to come and visit you guys. She is awesome. She's extremely important to the, the, the ministry that I have been doing. And he, he uses this word there. He says that she is a servant to the church. Now that word servant in the Greek is the, wor- the Greek word diakonos. And it, it means, it's where we get our term deacon. Now that means something different for everybody, right? If you come from the Southern Baptist world, right, that might mean the leaders of your church. It might mean the angry guys who fire the pastor or do something, whatever. If you are from North Carolina, it might be a mascot for a really bad football team, right? But the word deacon literally means in the scripture, servant. That's all it means, a servant leader. And if you're familiar with the story in Acts chapter 6, the first deacons were, had hands laid on them and were appointed as deacons to serve the church in the serving of the daily food to the poor widow, and, widows and orphans. That was their job. That the, that the leaders and the apostles came together and said, it's not good for us to take time away from preaching the gospel, discipling people, and studying the scriptures. It's not good for us to take a bunch of time away from that to, to feed the poor. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some godly men, and we're going to lay hands on them, and we're going to let them lead this particular ministry of the church. And so that's what they did. And so it's thought by some, and there's some debate on this, that Phoebe is likely one of the first female deacons installed in the local church. Now, there's all sorts of argument on that. Personally, where I land, I, th- I think this is what Paul is saying. I think Paul says, hey, Phoebe's a deacon of the church here for me, and as a matter of fact, I'm sending her to you to bring this letter. Now, not everyone's going to agree on that, and we, and, and we can say, okay, we're going to agree to disagree on whether she was actually installed as a deacon at her church. But whether she was or she wasn't, she clearly was esteemed by Paul for the important role that she brought to the ministry. And this is a big deal because in the first century, women were meant to hold second place, serve the husbands, and keep their mouths shut. Paul says, look, Phoebe, she's vitally important to the ministry here. And she's bringing this letter to you from Corinth, which is where Paul was at the time, She has served me faithfully. She has served many people here faithfully. Make sure you serve her when she gets there. I think that's pretty cool, right? That that Paul would take time out uh, in writing this big letter to the church of Rome and say, hey, be ready to love on Phoebe when she shows up. Now, verses three through 16, I'm not gonna read all of them, but let me give you a quick snapshot because there are 26 different people named throughout these verses, right? Look at verse three with me. He says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, right? Prisca and Aquila were a married couple that had done a lot of ministry with Paul. If you read on there through verses four and five, he ends up saying that they actually risked their lives for him at one point. And here's just what I think is really cool about Paul naming those two people, right? And the church in Rome and what they're doing. And, he, and he's saying hello to, uh, saying, hey, greet them when they come as well to visit you guys. Here's, here's what he's saying. He's like, look, this is a married couple who spent their lives as a husband and wife serving Jesus and his mission. Guys, most, most marriages, even within the, the church, don't get centered around the mission of the gospel. 
It's, pro- it's why a lot of marriages, by the way, it have lots of fights and issues going on, right? Besides the fact that it's two sinners coming together and living with one another all the time, right? We forget that one of the reasons God designed marriage in the first place is that the husband and the wife can glorify God and reflect the gospel together better than they can apart. And it's a great mystery of marriage that a husband and wife who love one another, forgive one another well, and serve his church faithfully are going to do more gospel ministry. Now, that doesn't mean if you're single you can't do gospel ministry. Far from it. Paul even says, hey, it's probably better to remain single that you could do a lot together. But a married couple together that loves one another and loves God well does so much for the cause and the mission of Christ. And I think this is beautiful that Paul here shares this. And then if you move down to verse 5, right, here's a cool little fact. If you guys are ever on Jeopardy, maybe they'll ask this question sometime, right, because they ask um, Bible questions on there. Who's the first convert in Asia? Epinatus. There you go. There's your fun fact for the, the fair. Yeah, everybody's like, you might know who the first follower of Christ was in Asia? Epinatus. There you go. Right there. You got it. Moving on. Verse 11. He lists two names there in verse, verse 11. Let me read that to you. He says, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Now, Herodian is clearly a Jewish name. And Paul calls him a kinsman, so clearly this guy is Jewish. And here's one of the things that I think is cool about Paul mentioning this guy, Herodian. He's clearly Jewish. He clearly came from a family, by the way, that was loyal to the kingly line of Herod. Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about Herod. He wasn't a big fan of Jesus. right? So at some point, you have this family who's loyal to the king of Israel and to the Roman government. Now what? This guy's named after Herod, but he's a follower and disciple of who? Jesus. How cool is that? Then you move down to this next part, right? You have this Jewish guy, Herodian, who's now a follower of Christ. And then Paul names the whole family of this other guy named who? Narcissus. Now, I love this part. Right? Let me, let me show you. In Greek mythology, right, Narcissus was a hunter who was known for his beauty he had two parents, the river god Cephasus and a nymph named Liriope, if you're interested in, in, in Greek and Roman mythology. And he was proud and that he disdained those who loved him. So he had great beauty, but anyone that loved him, he, he had disdain for them. And, and the story goes in Greek mythology that Nemesis noticed this behavior and attracted Narcissus to a pool. And here's what happened to Narcissus. He gets to this pool where he sees his own reflection in the water. And upon seeing his own reflection, he falls in love with it. And he's so in love with the image, not realizing that it's him, that he's unable to leave the beauty of his reflection by the water. And Narcissus lost his will to live. He stares at his reflection until his death. Fascinating story, right? Right? That's who this guy's named after, by the way. You think maybe he had some, you know, growing up, he maybe had some issues. It's like, hey, you're named after the guy that loved himself so much that he stared at a reflection of himself in the water until he just died. He decided that eating and drinking weren't important. He just wanted to look at his own reflection. That's who we want you to be like. It's like, all right, mom and dad, thanks a lot for that name. All right, okay, so, so here you have this guy named Narcissus. And, and by the way, Narcissus uh, is the origin of the term narcissism, 
which is a fixation with oneself and one's physical appearance. So if you're, if anybody, by the way, if anybody ever calls you a narcissist, that is not a term of endearment. Okay, they're, they're, they are saying something negative about your character, not something positive, okay? And so, th- so we get our term narcissism from this guy narcissist, yet here you have, right, this guy narcissist who's clearly grew up in Greek and Roman culture, a Gentile, and he and his entire family have come to Christ. Then look down at verse 13 with me. Right, Paul says this, greet Rufus, Chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, I actually don't want to focus on Rufus, so that's a pretty cool name. But I actually want to focus on this. Like, Paul goes out of his way to mention Rufus's mom and say, look, she's not just a mom to, to Rufus. She was a mom to me as well. Right? And encouragement to say, hey, mothers have an important role in the spiritual formation of people, specifically their own children. But look, I... It wasn't just my mom who had an impact on me. I had tons of friends whose moms were surrogate moms to me as well. And, and so even Paul views this woman as a mom and a mentor. And Paul says, look, I'm thankful for her. Greet her when you get this letter. So here's what I want to notice from these 16 verses. Right, there's a number of things we can pull from all these different names that Paul lists and all these different people Paul kind of gives a, a greeting to. Right, number one is this. Right, notice the diversity of the, of the church. Look at that. You've got women and men both being mentioned for their important and vital role to what they were doing in Christ's church. There's people from different racial backgrounds. You have Jews and Greeks coming together, being greeted by Paul and, and him saying how thankful he is for their work in the, in the ministry of the gospel in Rome. Right, you have different cultures coming together. You have people that were loyal to the line of Herod, and you have people that were loyal to some Greek god named Narcissus. You have different classes together. If you understand some of what you read there, about two-thirds of the names listed there in those 16 verses are probably slaves. And so you have extremely wealthy people, which probably, like Herodian, was probably wealthy. And then you have slaves who Rufus is thought to have likely been a slave. And you have Paul listing all these different people and you see this great diversity in the church, but you also see amongst that diversity a great unity in the church. As Paul is calling them to live out the implications of the gospel, he commends them for their diversity and their unity. I also want you guys to notice, look at the, uh, of all the things that Paul says, he uses words like kinsmen, fellow prisoners, beloved, uh, fellow workers, the servanthood and the encouragement of the local church together. He's encouraged by their work and the way that they serve the gospel faithfully in a very, very difficult place. And then he commends their brotherhood and tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss because all the churches of Christ greet them. Guys, Rome was a hard place to be doing ministry. Extremely difficult. I think Gainesville is a pretty hard place to do ministry. Rome was even more difficult. Right? And yet, the early church in Rome worked past barriers of gender, race, culture, and class to work together for the glory of God. And how cool is that? That in, in the canon of Scripture, for some 2,000 years until Christ returns, 
right? These people's names are etched forever in God's word to us as an encouragement for what the church looks like. I just think that's awesome. So, you know, you guys normally, you want to skip past those 16 verses. Look at the encouragement that you can pull out of just a list of names that Paul had written there. Now, the second thing I wanted you guys to notice is in verses 17 through 20, and, and this is where Paul's going to give some final instructions. Let's read that. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, so, so Paul gives a final warning to the church at Rome in verses 17 through 20, right? And, and, and look at what he says. He says, look out for who? Those who cause division, right? Another way to, to, to word that would be for us to say, look out for wolves or look out for heretics. Now, I was reminded this past week in our men's study on Wednesday the, the importance of biblical truth and that truth matters, right? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 real quick with me. Some of you guys, this, I mean, this is a famous passage. Some of you guys, you know, were probably hoping to have this read at your wedding one day. Um, don't. It's a passage about the church, not your love for your spouse. Um, not, not saying that it can't be used to describe that, but this is actually talking about the way the church is supposed to relate with one another in 1 Corinthians 13. And look at verse 6, because I think when we're trying to define love, I remember back in, in Romans 12 and 13 and even into to chapter 14, Paul spent a lot of time talking about our need for the church to love our neighbors, love our enemies, and love one another well within the church also. That Paul spent a lot of time talking about that, and we have trouble, though, defining what love is. And so 1 Corinthians 13, Paul just lays it out. He's like, look, this is what love is supposed to look like. And one of the things that I think we tend to struggle with is this concept in verse 6. Let me read this to you. Love, he's talking about love. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but what? Rejoices with the truth. Meaning that, that God cares about what we think about him and what we teach others about him. God cares about what we teach as being right and wrong. God cares about those things and that if we truly love somebody, we may end up telling them something they don't want to hear because God's word says whatever they're doing is wrong. And that loving someone sometimes means confronting them. Right? And so Paul's laying that out here to Rome here in verses 17 through 20. He's like, look, there are those seeking to come into the church to cause divisions over things that have been explicitly taught in God's word. You need to stand up to them. You need to be on the lookout for them. And he gives them two, two things to kind of do in dealing with them, right? Uh, the first one he says is this, what to look for, right? And he says that he should look for people who, who tend to create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that they have been taught. So if, you, if you've been with us for any length of time over the course of the last year or so, Paul teaches plenty of doctrine in the book of Romans. The first eight chapters are just completely full of doctrine and teaching. And so there are some things that God declares to be true about himself and things that we are supposed to believe about him. And Paul says, look, you need to keep an eye out for people 
that are standing as obstacles contrary to what I've been teaching you. I've been teaching you about God's grace towards you in Christ and how he has forgiven you of your sins completely through the blood shared by Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. That you are free and forgiven in him. If someone teaches you something contrary to that, avoid them. Keep an eye out on them and avoid them. So number one, right, things to look for is to keep an eye on these false teachers and to avoid them if at all possible. But number two, he shares with us actually why false teaching is so dangerous. Look at verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but what? Their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Guys, this is why caring about biblical truth matters. Because if you tend to not care about what God's word says, you deceive yourself and others into thinking that you love God and serve him, but who you're actually serving is yourself. You're doing the very same thing Adam and Eve did all the way back in Genesis chapter three. You seek to be like God instead of worshiping the true God. I remember a couple years ago, um, our former worship leader, Charles, invited uh, some of the guys from the Krishna lunch to come to church, and they showed up in their garb and, and whatever else. And so I was talking to them beforehand, and I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. The one guy was a recent convert, and he was like a, a, a recent freshman at the University of Florida. And I, I know you guys are really smart when you guys get to UF, but this guy was not. And I don't mean from like an intelligence standpoint was he smart. I mean from a standpoint of like he was lost in his own mind. Like, as Paul says in Romans, that professing to be wise, he actually became a fool. And so he's talking to me, and he's just not making a whole lot of sense. And here's one of the, so I'm just, you know, I'm trying to engage them and trying to find out a little bit of what they believe about Krishna thought and whatever else, and I'm talking with him. And I could tell that, like, the one guy, he was the mentor of this younger guy, and he just really wanted the younger kid to stop talking, but he didn't know how to tell him to stop talking to me. And so at one point, they asked me kind of what I believed, and so I shared the gospel with him. I said, here's, here's the good news of what Jesus has done for us. He laid down his own life for us so that we might be forgiven. And I shared the importance of the cross and why that matters and why the resurrection matters. And, and, and here's what this kid says to me. He looks at me and says, you know what? I, I think we, we pretty much are on the same page. I'm like, interesting, okay. He's like, you know, you call God Jesus, we call, you know, we, we call him Vishnu, but, you know, God's really all the same thing. We just call him by different names. I was like, okay, keep going. He's like, let me give you an illustration. He's like, you know, what if we worked in the same place? You know, remember, remember this guy's 17. What if we worked in the same place? And we have the same boss. And, and I, call, I call him Steve and you call him Dave, but he's still our boss. We're just calling him by different names. I'm like, you know what? get what you're saying. There's a problem with your theory, though. You've never had a job. <laughs> He's like, well, what do you mean? I was like, dude, let me tell you something. If you have a boss, you'd better call that boss by their real name. If you don't, what's going to happen? You will be terminated. Guess what? God has a name, and he cares to be called by that name. He doesn't want you to make up a name for him. He's not interested in you creating facts about him. Just like if you have a boss, your boss is not interested in you creating facts about them. 
He's interested, or she, in being listened to and you performing the duties of your job according to what they ask you to do, not what you want to make up. I said, truth is not relative. Just like the name of your boss is not relative. And you know, so I could see he's kind of looking at me like, well, I don't think you get what I mean. I think I, think I do. <laughs> You're just wrong. And I've shown you that. Right? This kind of stuff matters because in professing to worship God, they were really worshiping themselves. They were picking and choosing what they wanted God to be and were creating that for themselves. And one of the interesting things, right, is that illustration that kid used with me sounds really smooth and cool, right? He's doing exactly what we see Paul talking about here in verses 17 through 20. He's using smooth talk and flattery. Oh, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah you, we worship the same thing. You're cool. No, we don't, bro. We don't. Because see, the difference is, is your God demands that you act and perform and follow him. My God demands that I submit to him because he did everything for me already. And there's a major, major difference in those two things. And the worst part about it is, is in using this smooth talk, it says that he deceives the naive. And the naive are those that don't believe that anyone would ever trick them. We've all known somebody like this. If you don't know someone like this, you're probably that person. So I hate to break it to you. Guys, people will take advantage of you. They just will. Right? And Paul says that these false teachers are the ones that prey on the naive. Because the naive believe, hey, like no one's out to trick me. No one's out to deceive me. No one's out to pull me and, and, and try to mess with my relationship with God. Guys, there are people like that. There are people out there whose goal is to, to point you away from Christ and point you to yourself. And Paul says, be on the lookout for them and stand against them. Now, let me give you some, let me give you a, a, some encouragement on how you can stand against false teaching. Instead of studying every other false religion out there so that you know when someone's lying to you, you don't need to do that. I've got a really simple solution for you. Get to know God. Get to know God and his word. When, when I was in banking, they didn't have a study counterfeit bills to find counterfeits. You want to know how we would know if there was a counterfeit bill coming through there? We knew the real thing. I had, I had had real money in my hands every day for hours upon hours. And so when a fake bill came in, guess what? Pretty easy to spot because I knew what the real thing was. If you study God's word, if you pray and get to know him, you will know him. And in knowing him, you will spot a counterfeit from a mile away because it's, it screams fake. It screams, this is false. This isn't real love. This isn't the God who gave his life for me so that I might be forgiven of my sins. And so in knowing him and his word and worshiping him, you don't need to study other religions because the false will pop up to you and be obvious. Paul is saying here, stay in the word, stay in sound doctrine, and you will spot the fakes. And he says to them in verses 19 and 20, look, I'm encouraged by you guys. I'm encouraged by your love for God. I rejoice over you, but be wise 
be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And he says, look, if, you're, if you seek to know him and be wise, God will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. So rest in him until he does. Right, a great encouragement there right at the end, right? right rest in him. Rest in his word. Rest in his promises to us. And nothing will stand against you. Let's move to, to part three. I said there was gonna be three, three parts and they weren't gonna seem like they were gonna flow together. Well, here we go, right? He goes back to some shout outs <laughs> in verse 21, right? Look at, look at what he says. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So, you know, I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. I'm going to move quickly through this section. But I think it's pretty cool that a few people that are doing ministry with Paul are encouraged by what's going on in Rome and shouting out to them, right? You have Tim, Timothy, who's an important church leader and one of Paul's closest disciples, right? You can read, there's two letters of scripture actually written to this young man. He's got an imp- a very, very important role. God used him in mighty ways. And guys, he was young. I know we're a young church. God doesn't care how old you are. Right, Timothy had a very, very important role in the early church. Right, then we see Tertius. Congrats, bro. You wrote this letter. Paul dictated the letter to you, and you are forever in Scripture. Congratulations, man. Right, he shares Gaius, who's the, who is most likely the host of the house church in Corinth, and is interested in doing that. And then I love this, right? Erastus, the city treasurer, which goes to show even politicians can love Jesus. And then Cordus, who's just some guy. I'm not even sure who he is. Right? Anybody notice, by the way, if you got a Bible, anybody have, actually have verse 24 in your Bible? Okay, we got one person in the room, right? Because <laughs> most, most scriptures do not have verse 24 there. All right, here's why, in case you're wondering, like, oh my gosh, someone deleted my Bible. Um, no, okay. Uh, if you've got verse 24, you can go back up and read verse 20. The end of verse 20 is the exact same thing said in verse 24. More than likely, our manuscripts are a copyist error. If you're not familiar with what that is, right? Um, believe it or not, we didn't always have Xerox machines and printers. And so the early manuscripts and the early letters of Paul, right? Paul would write this letter, he would send it to Rome, and then what the church would do is they would have a scribe copy the letter down and, 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 and give it out to other churches so they could read it and be encouraged by it. Well, imagine if your job for eight hours a day, every day, was to sit at your desk and hand write out a copy of the book of Romans. Do you think you might make a mistake once in a while? Yeah. And so what happened is, is verse 20, right? You got, you got the scribe. He's, you know, he's on hour seven and a half of his day. And he's sitting there and he writes verse 20 and then he nods off and he wakes back up, right? All of you have ever done this when you're studying or doing something, right? And he gets lost and he wrote verse 20 back in, after verse 23. I mean, it is verbatim, word for word in the Greek, exactly what's written in verse 20. And so most, most uh, of our, our translators have decided at this point to just go ahead and remove that verse because it's mo- more than likely not supposed to be there. If your Bible has verse 24 there, it doesn't change the meaning of anything going on in that passage. And so there's no need to worry about it. Okay? So I just thought that was a cool little thing that I would share with you guys. All right, moving to verse 25. The last section, Paul's doxology to the church at Rome. Paul's singing praises on what God has done. Let's read this. Now to him who is able 
to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Right, Paul says there in verse 25, right, he uses the word strengthen. Him who is able to strengthen you. And that's the Greek word sterizo. And it means to make stable, set fast, or place firmly. So it's the idea of being, having a foundation laid or laying concrete. So basically, here's what Paul's kind of saying. Hey, look, God is our firm foundation. And in him, he is able to strengthen you. He is able to, to concrete you together with him. It's God who's able to do this. Now, how does God do this? Paul shares that, right? He says, first, right, through my gospel. This isn't Paul kind of puffing himself up, but he's saying, look, the, the information I've shared with you in, the, in, 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 this, in this letter, in this epistle, is not some special revelation of mine, but it's the same message of Jesus Christ. And he shares that. He says, through my gospel and what? The preaching of Jesus Christ. You, you are able to be strengthened by him. Then he moves on. He says, not just those two things, but the revelation of the mystery, meaning that the prophetic writings of old have an important place in Christianity because they show us that God promised he would send Jesus, and then Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. That for generations, right, Jewish men and women looked forward to this Messiah coming and finally he has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in that revelation, the prophetic writings are the scriptures that attest to how we are saved. Here's what Paul's saying. He's like, look guys, God is behind this letter that I am sending you and shared with you. He's behind it doctrinally, he's behind it practically, and then here's what you need to do, follow him. To the only wise God be what? Glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That in all of this stuff that Paul has shared, in everything, it's not meant to make Paul the best apostle. It's not meant to make Rome the best church. It's not to be the most doctrinally sound group of believers in the Roman world. No, it has one purpose. And that is to bring God the glory. Because only God could come up with the good news. Only he could fulfill the prophets. Only he could lay down his life for our sake. That the whole reason the church at Rome exists in the first place and guides us as well is to glorify him. And so here's how I want us to close this morning, guys. As we take communion this morning, right? If you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, we take communion every Sunday. And I would encourage you to come up and take communion. I, I would encourage you to, to sit there, take a moment to reflect and pray, confess any sin that you may feel God is revealing to you. Confess that sin, ask for God's forgiveness and to change you. And then in that, come up and take communion and worship him. Communion is an act of worship where as we take the bread and the juice, we say, God, you have given your flesh and blood for me. Thank you for saving me. It's not an act of penance. It's not an act of contrition. It's an act of worship. 
thanking God for already doing what Christ did, which is forgiving you through the blood and flesh of Jesus Christ. And you can come back to your seat and you can worship him. You can worship him in prayer. You can worship him in thought. You can worship him in his word. And you can worship him in song. And as we do that, it might be a good idea if you've been here over the course of the last year and you can remember some of Romans reflecting on the beauty of what God has revealed to us about himself in Romans. Right, because in Romans 1, right, here's what Paul shared with us. We are broken. I love you guys, but you are broken just like me. Because of sin, we are broken. And Paul shares with us that we try to fix this on our own, but guess what? We can't. And every world religion out there says the same thing. We're broken, but you can fix yourself. Except for the Bible. You know what the Bible says? You're broken and you stand no chance. On your own, there is no hope for you. And so that's, Paul, that's how Paul starts, right? And then he gets to Romans chapter 3, and, we, and, and he shares this with us. Even though we're broken and there's no way we can put the pieces back together ourselves, God finds a way in his son, Jesus Christ. That in, in Christ, although we were sinners separated from the glory of God, Jesus lays down his own life for us on the cross. And in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the great exchange occurs and Jesus gives us his righteousness with the Father, his perfect standing before God. His entire nature is given to us in the sense of not, not his actual, like, godliness, right? That's, that's Mormon thought. We don't become gods. But he does give to us and credit to us the family name. We get adopted as sons and daughters of God because of what Christ has done. And not only did Jesus give us his righteousness so that we can become family with God, but then he takes on our sin and God's wrath and punishment. Guys, this is why the gospel is so beautiful because not only did Jesus forgive you and give you his standing with God, but he forever paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. You cannot do anything to add to the work of Jesus on the cross. Some of us play this game where we want Jesus to be our savior, but then after we accept Christ, we want to just keep adding to the gospel. Well, I, can, I can be a little bit better. I can be a really good Christian, or I can do these things. And we just want to add and add and add to the work of Christ. And Paul says, you can't add to it. It's paid for. It's finished. How many of you guys have some sort of loan debt? Either student loan or car loan or house loan or something, right? Okay, a lot of you guys in the room. If, if someone came to you and said, hey, look, I know you got a bunch of student loan debt. I'm just going to pay it for you. How many of you guys would be excited about that? Yeah, a lot of you guys. How many of you guys would continue to try to pay that debt after it was already paid off? David. <laughs> David's the only one, right? It's like, I just really like the bank. I'm really thankful for that guy who paid off. I'm just going to keep giving him money. Not one of us in this room would do that, and yet we constantly try to do that with God. God said, you can't pay me anything. You can't do anything. Jesus has paid in full, and you're like, cool, thanks, Jesus. Here, I got something for you. God's like, dude, paid, done. There's nothing else to pay. That's what Paul shares with us in Romans 3. Then we get to Romans 7, right, and Paul shares great encouragement with us that sin has been defeated once and for all. 
both judicially in declaring you not guilty, but also practically the power of sin in your life doesn't have to have any way or sway over you any longer. You can actually put sin to death because of what Jesus did on the cross. That you actually have the power to say no to sin, to stand up and obey God instead. Then in Romans 8 and 9, Paul just says, look, rest in him. Because God is sovereign and your salvation is secure for eternity. If you are really a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You can't lose it. God has promised to you that in his sovereignty he has chosen you, he has elected you, and you are his. And you can't do anything to change that. And then you get to Romans 10 through 15, right? And Paul says, in light of all that stuff that I share with you, mobilize for mission. Be ready to go. Be ready to go love on the world around you and tell others the same exact thing that I've told you here. That they're broken and yet God fixes them. So, might we worship God this morning? Might we just sit back, take out everything that clouds our judgment, clouds our attention, clouds our affections throughout the week? I would encourage you to pray before you come up and take communion and confess any sin, ask God to reveal that to you, and then come up and take communion. And then just go back to your seat and worship him because he's worthy, guys. He's so worthy. There is nothing on this earth that can even begin to measure up with what Paul shares with us in this letter to the Romans. That's our God. That's the level and the magnitude of his love for you. And there is nothing on this earth that can even stand in comparison to it. Let's worship him. I'm gonna pray for you guys and then we're gonna take communion. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can find great encouragement in it, even if it's a list of names. (laughs) God, thank you for the faithfulness of men and women over the last 2,000 years that you have used in your sovereignty and in your wisdom to share the good news. God, this morning, if there's any sin laying on our heart that we haven't confessed to you, Father, forgive us. Thank you that Jesus died for our sins so that we might know you. And then, Father, help us to worship you. Help us to orient our lives in such a way as to bring attention and glory and honor to you forevermore. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.